You're listening to a podcast from the Dorky Book Festival 2018. The Irish Times calls writer and musician Willie Vlaughton the literary version of a Neil Young or a Tom Petty, bearing a ragged standard for empathy, compassion and decency, a throwback to a generation of novelists who still championed the underclass. Author of Lean on Pete and frontman of the band Richmond Fontaine, Willie joined us in Dorky to perform songs by his band The Delines, interspersed with banter about his fifth novel, Don't Skip Out On Me. Accompanied on pedal steel by David Murphy, Willie Vlaughton performs a number of songs and chats with RTE's Dave Fanning. Um, do I have a microphone? I really have to tell you. Just very briefly, um, what's been happening at the Doggy Book Festival the last few days and our last year, and tomorrow as well, is very different than what might happen here tonight. Because in many ways tonight is Willie telling his own story, particularly about his current book, through song. So there's a lot of song, a lot of music tonight, and I'm probably going to start off with four numbers. So from Cork, could you please welcome Dave Murphy, who's going to take my left-hand side, and the middle, from Reno, Nevada, Willie Lawton. Well, you're, you just met David Murphy. He's one of the coolest guys I've ever met. Uh, he's good-looking, and he's the first normal, insane pedal steel player I've ever met. <laughs> he's the rarest thing, I think, in the world. Semi-sane pedal steel player. So well, thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm going to start. It seems like every book I write starts as a song. I'll write a song, and the idea of the song won't leave me alone. Um, and, and, and so sometimes I write two or three songs on an on a idea and it becomes a book. Uh, and sometimes I write soundtracks to my books because the songs never stop. <coughs> With Don't Skip Out On Me, it felt like, it felt like a melancholy song. Uh, the, the whole novel to me felt dipped inside a melancholy song. So I included uh, a soundtrack to go along with the book. Um, it's 17 songs of Richmond Fontaine. We, we had just called it a day as a band. And right when those guys finally got over the sound of my voice and had to hear me and my sad stories all the time, I called them up on the phone and asked them to make one more record because uh, I'd always wanted to make a, a soundtrack with the band. Um, and uh, so we're going to start um, each section with a song from the soundtrack. And this first bit, we're going to do four songs that inspired Don't Skip Out of Me. This first one is called Horace and the Trophy.
Thank you. Maybe two years before I started the novel, Don't Skip Out of Me, I, I had uh, driven around the area where the book takes place and then went home and, and wrote this song. And to me, uh, this song, although the lyrics are, are a bit different, uh, feels, uh, feels like a, a novel. This is a song I, I named the book after. It's called Don't Skip Out of Me.
fin finished the first draft of Don't Skip Out of Me. It was uh, uh, 600 pages long. And, and it, was, it was keeping me up at night. The only way I write uh, stories is, is if I sleep good, then the story's doing good. And if I wake up in the middle of the night in a panic, that means something's wrong and I can't figure it out. So maybe three years I was tinkering on a 600-page novel, and, and I spent half of the time on 300 pages of it, which was another story that was going on. And I finally was playing a gig one night and with, with the band, uh, the Lions, and, um, and the drummer comes up to me and goes, Jesus, you look worse than you normally look. And I said, and I told him, I go, look at my hands shaking. And he goes, well, what happened? Did you get a bad call from home or what's going on? And I said, no, I just realized just 10 minutes ago that I have to cut out 300 pages of this book I was working on. And he's like, what's the big deal about that? I'm like, you know, man, that's like over a year and a half of work. And I was all bummed out. And he goes, oh, you know, just uh, go cry like you would and uh, drink too many beers tonight and whine about it and then just fix it. And he just walked away. Uh, tough love, I guess you'd call that. And, 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 and I did that. The next morning, I woke up with a splitting headache, and I just started cutting out 300 pages while we were, we were driving to the next town. Um, and I slept like a baby after that. And the novel finished itself. But I wrote a ton of songs off the half that I cut out. Uh, uh, this, if any of you have read the book, uh, Horace Hopper, the main character, uh, uh, um, in, in, in the other version, he hung out with a guy named Lonnie Dixon a lot. And this is, is kind of a story. It's, it's called Whitey and Me. And, and, and really, it's, it's a story of, oh, it's like having a bad relative. You can't really get rid of them. They just break your heart over and over. And you cut ties with them, and then you love them. So you, you retie the tie you just cut, and it goes on and on and on. And that's what this song's about, Whitey and Me.
saying that most of my stories start as songs and then once in a while I'll write a story that uh, doesn't work and it, and it once in a while becomes a song. And one morning, I don't know why, but I woke up thinking about, uh, a story just came to me. And, I, and like I said, I'm not really sure why, but it was the idea of this, of this man and, and woman get married and she starts picking on him after a couple of years. She... The way he watches TV drives her crazy. The way he chews, the way he sips his coffee off, the way he drives, all these things start driving, driving her crazy. And so to appease her, he, uh, he buys her things. He takes her out. Every time he gets paid, he takes her out to dinner. And every time he gets paid, he buys her a gift. And one time he's walking by a pet store and he sees that there's pet finches for sale. And she, as a kid, had a pet finch. And he thought, well, maybe she would like that. And he never liked the idea of a bird in a cage, but he goes inside and he buys the fish and the bird and comes back to her. And of course, she, she loves a gift. And then a couple weeks later, they get into a huge fight and, uh, and she takes the bird and, and the cage. And she walks outside into a snowstorm and she opens up the cage and pushes the bird out. And the man sees that this woman that he loves is uh, uh, so mad at him that he, she would push a little bird out into a snowstorm in the middle of winter. And he was so horrified by it that, he could, that she would do that to the bird and to him, but that 
he had caused somebody to be that mad against him that he just became a drifter. He gave up. And this is this song is called Wake Up Ray. And and Ray is, is the character I just told you about, you know, running buddy. Uh, they're two drifters. And and even after all these years he can't uh, escape that image. Um, so this is a song called Wake Up Ray. Ain't no use. Oh, Sunrise, they were on the road. Mr. Reese drove. Horace chewed Copenhagen and worked his hand exerciser. And the bay gelding Lex and the old mare honey swayed back and forth in the stock trail. 
Well, I know it's early to talk, but I was hoping we might, Mr. Reese said. He held a cup of coffee in his left hand and steered with his right. Well, what is it? said Horace. Well, I'll need you to be honest with me. I'll be honest, even if it hurts my feelings. Well, I'll try, Mr. Reese. Horace spit into an old McDonald's cup and the truck shook as the road worsened. The old man slowed to 25, finished his coffee, and set the mug between them on the fence seat. Well, if I'm optimistic about my back, I have maybe four years left where I can work. As you know, after I heard it the first time, we hired Albert and his wife to help out. You were still in school. He and his wife had talked about buying the ring someday. But then his wife left him, and that idea fell apart. The reason I'm bringing this up is sooner or later I'm going to have to sell the place. We'll have to move into town or in with one of our daughters. I know we've talked about this before, but I wanted to again before you left. You seem a natural for this sort of work, and you're good at it. I know you're young and you don't have a woman or a family, and it's a lonely life. That's something only you know if you can take. What I'm saying is after your boxing career, why don't you come back? We'll set out a plan for you to take over the ranch, for you to own the ranch yourself. I'd hate to see all the hard work we've put in these years disappear like it has with the Casey place and the Haas place. Well, you've seen both those go from working ranches to nothing. Now Morton's the soul too. And who really knows what will happen to you? Working a ranch is hard, especially if you're single. And there's not a lot of money in either. You know that. And I know you've been skittish with us and it's hard for you to accept gifts. I also know it's been hard for you to relax around us. To trust us. But we trust you. What I'm trying to say is that Mrs. Reese and I, well, we think of you as our son. And we want you to have the ranch when you're ready for it. Horace looked at the old man who couldn't speak. Tears welled in his eyes. He looked out the window at the hills of sage and the distant mountains behind him. They drove for miles before he said anything. Well, I don't think anyone's ever thought I could run a ranch, he said finally. But that you and Mrs. Reese think I could? Well, that's the nicest thing I've ever heard. I won't forget that you said it. I really won't. You and Mrs. Reese saved me. I know that. Well, you saved us too, Mr. Reese said. And you helped Mrs. Reese. She wasn't herself after our daughters left. You know how she was. You know how she gets. You helped her. Horace again looked over at him. It's been a lot of years I dreamed that I was your son. A lot of years. But Mr. Reese, I'm gonna become a world champion boxer someday. And I don't know how long that's gonna take. And to do that, I have to move to the city. I have to change the way I live and where I live. I wish I could do both at the same time, but I've thought a lot about it, and there's, well, there's no way I can. But boxing's such a hard way of life for us. It's not gonna be that bad. But the fights, they're hard to get. You're the one who told me that that the other way of fighting now is more popular. MMA is more popular, but people still like boxing. They do, they really do. So I'm not too worried, he said, but his voice grew uncertain. I'll get the fights, Mr. Reese, and I'll be okay. You'll see. It just takes work. You're the one who told me that. You're the one who said, if you just keep working hard, things tend to break your way. Well, that's true. I have said that. Mr. Reese's voice trailed off. He rubbed his face with his free hand and cleared his throat. 
Can I ask you another question? Sure. Why do you have to change who you are? Why do you have to become a Mexican boxer? I should have never told you that, said Horace. Mr. Reese looked over at him. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you told me. It's good to be honest. And I'm honored you'd share that with me. But I just have to ask, why? Because, because Mexican boxers are the toughest, said Horace. Everyone knows that. They go toe to toe. They're true warriors who never quit, who never back down, who are never scared. Eric Morales, he's never been afraid of anybody. Not anything. I bet he has. He never has. I know he hasn't. But you're not Mexican, Mr. E said. Horace didn't answer. He rolled down the passenger side window as the sun began to come over the monitor range. He let his arm hang out, and the morning air was cool and smelled of sage and dust. Did I have such a horse? No, he said, but it wasn't true. He wanted to jump out of the truck. He wanted to be a million miles away from that old truck. The thing is, Mr. Reese, there's no toughening in boxers. But that's where you're wrong, the old man said, suddenly excited. He slumped down and the truck seat and steered with his legs. He took the wallet from his back pocket and pulled out a piece of paper with Mrs. Reese's handwriting on it. In bold letters, at the top of one side, it said Indian. And on the other side, it said Irish. Mrs. Reese and I went to the library and looked on their computer. We found out some things. There was a boxer in the 70s named Danny Little Red Lopez. He was part you and part Mexican and part Irish. Now you're part Irish, your grandfather Doreen's husband was from over there somewhere, and you're part Paiute. Ah, that's different, sure. Yeah, and he has a Mexican in him, but not as much as you think. And then there's Marvin Campbell. He was a flathead, and it says he was a champion, too. Now, flatheads are out of Montana. He isn't from Nevada, but he's close. Not that far away when you really think about it. And last is a guy named Joe the Boss Hit. It said he was the first Native American heavyweight world champion. But I don't want to be like Marvin Campbell or Joe Hit. I know who they are. Horace fell silent for a moment, then he looked at the old man. Mr. Reese, I don't want to be mean. Pius, they're not good for anything. Oh, that's not true, the old man said, and you know it's not. That's just your grandmother talking. It's a bad thing to say. Anyway, like I said, you're part Irish too, and there are a lot of great Irish boxers. I have a list of those on the other side. Don't bother, Mr. Reese, Horace said, and shook his head. No one thinks I'm white, because I don't look white. I don't look Irish, so I'm not Irish, but I look like a Mexican. Everyone who doesn't know me thinks I look Mexican, they really do. He again looked out the window and his feet tapped down on the floor of the truck faster and faster. He began to pick at his fingernails. His voice faltered. I appreciate all your saying, Mr. Reese, but I'm gonna be a champion. I really am. It's like the boat book said. To be a champion, you have to create your own future. You have to make it yourself. You have to build your boat little by little and brick by brick until it's unbreakable and unbeatable. And that boat, that boat will take you to the next level, to the level of champions. And that's what I'm gonna do. But what if it doesn't happen? What will you do if it doesn't happen? What if you don't become a champion? What will you do then? A winner doesn't think like that, Mr. Reese. And for the first time in Morris's life, he was mad at the old man. His voice shook. Don't you get it? A winner only thinks about winning. A champion, he only thinks about being a champion. The old man slowed the truck to, the cro to a crawl and again looked at the boy. Well, I didn't mean to upset you so much, Horace. 
I'm sorry, I am. I just feel like I have to ask these questions because you're my friend and that's what friends do. They watch out for each other. What if you get hurt in some permanent way? I won't get hurt. Or anyway, I can't worry about things I can't control. A champion doesn't think that way. A champion only thinks about things he can control and he does the work on those so he can get to the next level. When he gets to the next level, he just thinks about the level after that. He just keeps building his boat. Mr. Reese again rubbed his face and tried to think. He cleared his throat. I hate to bring this up, he said, and I hope you'll forgive me someday for what I'm about to say, but I feel I have to. I have to because boxing is so dangerous. Remember, Horace, I took you to your fight in Las Vegas. I've seen you box. I see what happens when you get pressure at the corner. I see how you panic. Don't bring up Las Vegas, Horace shouted, and tears fell suddenly from his eyes. His feet tapped harder against the floor, and he fidgeted uncontrollably. A mile passed in silence, and his voice became nothing but a broken whisper. Please don't bring up Las Vegas. Please don't ever bring it up again. I'm begging you. I'm seriously begging you, mysterious. It was just one fight, and I told you I never wanted to talk about it again, and you promised me you would. You promised me you'd never mention it, not ever. I did promise, that's true, the old man said. And I'm sorry I broke that promise. This conversation hasn't gone the way I was hoping it would go. I didn't mean to upset you so much. I'm not the most eloquent, but I mean well. I just want to help you. I'm running out of time, and I believe I have an answer to some of your problems and to some of mine, too. Horace wiped the tears from his eyes. I know what you're talking about, Mr. Reese. I do. I appreciate it. And don't worry, when I come back, I'll buy the ranch for a lot of money. One of my main goals is to make sure you and Mrs. Reese can live the easy life. You deserve that. And I'll make sure it happens. I'll take care of you both, and I'll take care of the ranch and all the horses and dogs. Everybody, I really will. You'll see. You've been the best parents I've had. I know all that. And I know my own mom and dad don't care. So it's my solemn promise that I'll help you. And I don't break promises, Mr. Reese. I'd rather die than break one. But for right now, I'd rather just quit talking. The old man nodded. You're right, he said. I've talked enough and I'll stop. I just hope someday that you'll forgive me. Is it about loneliness or is it about boxing? 
you know, uh, I think it is about, it's kind of a study in loneliness. I think uh, from the isolation of the ranch to the isolation of the sheep herders to the isolation of Horace um, because he's so, his identity is so lost. He's so lost. Um, uh, that, those were big things. Uh, Mrs. Reese's uh, agoraphobia uh, is, a, is very lonely. Um, I, I think when I, when I started the book, I, it, it was that idea that it's so easy to break kids. It's, I mean, everybody gets a little broken and beat up and scarred and grown up. It's just life. But if you beat up a kid too much, or he doesn't get the right kind of love uh, at an early age, I think there's scars in dead school that are really hard to undent and unscar so they can get by uh, like a normal person. And I think my idea with Horace was here's, here's this kind of lost kid who's both his parents kind of skipped out on him. He was raised by a, a racist An Irish mother. <laughs> uh, he was raised by a, a kind of a racist grandmother, but then at, at 14 he, he meets this old ranch couple that truly love him. And, and they try all they can to patch him up, uh, patch him up with love. And, but at that age, he's already, he's already so dented that, that they have trouble getting through. And that was the, the idea of it. Boxing, you know, I, it, but my, my love of boxing is kind of strange. Uh, when I was 14, it was a, a Reno had some big fights, uh, but the biggest fight they had in years was uh, a guy named Colin Jones, a Welsh boxer, versus Milton McCrory. It was a welterweight championship. And because it was such a big fight in Reno, the biggest, most prestigious one in 100 years nearly, uh, they wrote tons of articles on it. So I read, you know, half a dozen articles on Colin Jones. And the story with him uh, that I, I loved so much uh, was that he ran five miles uh, to work and he dug graves by hand all day long and then ran five miles home and then went and worked out. And I, I've always been kind of a non-violent, uh, I grew up around violence, but I didn't, I never liked it. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm more or less a guy that's kind of lazy, that sits around and reads books, listens to records, but I desperately would love to be as tough as a guy that ran five miles to work and can dig graves all day without quitting. Uh, so, so I think I cut the picture out of the paper, put it on my wall, and I said, I want to be like Colin Jones somehow without actually doing any of that work. Uh, <laughs> while I'm listening to my records. And, uh, and then I started subscribing after that to The Ring Magazine. And The Ring Magazine is a boxing magazine in the US. And, and, uh, and I, what I was drawn to was the tragedy of it. Even as a kid, even as a 14, 15 year old, I would read the life history of a boxer. And they're usually pretty brutal. It's a, you know, a gifted athlete, boy, finds a trainer, a father figure. Uh, wins some fights, and by winning, he gets money and love, he gets married, has some kids, and then usually somebody rips him off, um, he becomes punch drunk, he starts losing, and then his wife leaves him, and he's alone. And, for, and so many of the stories of boxers are like that, and for whatever reason, I'm, I was really drawn to him, and I loved him, and I still love him. I could read those stories all day long. I don't know what's wrong. Yeah, but the funny thing is, with a guy like that, and other people as well that you would have known growing up, you would never have thought, like, I know these kind of people, but I couldn't write a book about them. Then Raymond Carver or somebody like that. I mean, I, I could go as far as John Steinbeck, but I'll stay with Carver. Carver doesn't do these kind of, you know, metaphorical books. It's very raw, very straight, it's very there. And you realize, wait a second, he's writing the exact same kind of stuff 
about people that I know. And I'm writing as well. I'm writing songs since the age of 12. Why can't I do that? Is that one of the results now? You can. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, you know, there was a, a, an Australian songwriter uh, I really liked named Paul Kelly. Um, and he, they call him the, the Bob Dylan of Australia. And I was always a fan of his. And he went through a phase that made a record uh, that was really inspired by Raymond Carver. And he wrote a song uh, based on a Raymond Carver short story. And I'd never heard of Raymond Carver. I was, you know, 19, 20. At the time, I was uh, living with my girlfriend in her mom's garage. And I didn't have a job. There's nothing like a, number one, uh, no mother wants a, a, a struggling musician to live with her daughter. And then he doesn't have a job. And he lays around listening to records and reading books all day. Uh, anyway, I read, I read a Carver book and it, 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 it shocked me because I didn't know you could write stories about normal people, people I knew. He was the first guy I ever read, maybe even more so maybe than John Steinberg, where I understood every word and I understood the men in the stories. Uh, none of these men were remarkable in, in any regard. And, 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 and I thought, well, Jesus, if you can write stories about that, those are the stories I've always wanted to write. I just didn't know you could. Okay, well, two like trying still not to ask the autobiographical question in terms of Paris becoming a Hector, because I know you didn't, you didn't become a boxer, you didn't know you didn't. Okay, hold on, hold on. The point I want to make is this. It's your mother here. I want to see you now. If you, go, if you talk about the parents in this, and then they go for grandparents, the reason, etc., and he can't necessarily understand that it always been given, because he never had one at the age of 14, and therefore he almost reacts against it and doesn't know how to handle it in any way at all. Thus, the boxing and stuff of trajectory, which is not necessarily the best road we should have. Point I'm making is this: your mother, uh, your first book came out, and it was there, it was in the shops. The second book had a first draft, and then she died, I think, after that or something. Did she read either one? Oh uh, no, you know my my mom did a lot of great things for me, uh, but she was not a fan of the arts, and she, uh, uh, she was not a fan of me writing books uh, or being in a band. You know, I, I wrote uh, stories for escapism. And I, I wrote stories because I, I loved them. I loved novels and I loved, I loved records so much uh, that I just did it in spite of uh, the fact I had no talent. Um, I, I just did it uh, so I could be a part of it. Um, and, and so, you know, I, part of the escapism was probably because my family wasn't really geared towards like a weird guy that likes records and, 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 and writes books and, and, and writes stories that are not about his family but about working class people, which I don't think she liked either. Do you know the band, there's a band playing down the road tonight um, down in Delhi called The National. And it happens every so often that a band is loved over here. They sell an awful lot of records. The Spade is the best band around. And yet, and there are a lot from the Midwest, funny enough, they're not so much from the coast. And they can be huge over here. Now, Richmond Fontaine, and like in Cincinnati, where the Nationals are from, they're not really very big in America, considering they're the coolest band around the world. Richmond Fontaine were very big, well, were very popular in Europe, as well, that your band that you left four years ago. Um, not necessarily at home. So I have to ask about the books. <laughs> are your books more popular in Europe than they are? I mean, books always because yeah, we're talking about books. What kind of books about the Midwest you possibly get? Or the, the kind of Western side of the life that we would know from reading or from Hollywood. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Richmond Fontaine was always like a. We were always the same. No matter what we did, we always had the, uh, the same amount of people came in the West, and we had good runs, but it was always the same. And I think when you know, 
only one of us, the smartest guy in the band, uh, uh, the guy that ran the band, maybe, uh, was the only guy that had a passport. Um, and so, so when we got a chance to tour over here, we were, you know, we had like a three-day party just when, when our, the guy that was helping us out over here said to get passports. Uh, we, like my first passport picture is so bad because I, I was, I was, I'd been drinking for four days and I looked horrible, but I was so proud just to have it. So we did tour over here a lot uh, because I think we were just, you know, I never thought I'd get to see anything. Um, as far as the books, my books have always done better in the U.S. than, than, than the band. Right. I'm not, I'm not sure why. I, I think it's always, it's tricky for uh, uh, working class stories to sell a lot anywhere, but in the U.S. I think it's, it can be tricky for, for, uh, um, for, for the kind of stories I write to, 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 to become a bestseller. But I, you know, I've always been, I think I said it the last time, I, I always think of myself as like, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm in the right, well, I, I'm in the slow lane on the freeway and a car that keeps kind of smoking and it only goes like 50 miles an hour and, and all the other bands and uh, riders are BMWs and they crash or they stop or they pass you by and you just, year after year, I just kind of keep going and going and going and nothing ever seemed to totally break down and I never stop and, and once in a while you get a lucky break and, you know, somebody helps you out and so I've always, it's always kind of been the same I just kind of do my thing and, 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 and that's where I like to be. And what do you get with this book? I mean, the second piece, no, the first piece you played there, you played that was an instrumental um, and you get a CD to what? To get back to that phrase I used earlier, that's not being so evocative of the Midwest. So, are, are, are you meant to play the album to specific passages in the book? Because if you buy the book, you get the book at the end there. You, you get the album with it, don't you? Well, not anymore. I knew you were going to say that. You know, old favorite and favorite. So old favorite and favorite quit doing that. Uh, uh, but no, I can't read the music at all. I can barely do it. I can barely hold a conversation at all with music because I, I, I've always used music as a, to daydream to. Um, what I wanted to do was to take, you know, in this case, we wrote 17 songs and I, I wanted like 17 big moments in the, in the story. I wanted to put the way of the music would feel to it. So a soundtrack, my, my idea was always that if you read the book, most people only read the book once, that, but maybe you'd leave the CD in your car and for a while, Horace Hopper stays alive with you. An old man stays alive with you. And you start changing the story, uh, how, what happens with the feel of the world. Maybe it sticks around for a little bit longer. Uh, that was always my idea of it. And I just love, I love writing soundtracks to books, which is not a lucrative thing to do. <laughs> just to mention Horace again, it becomes somebody else in the book. I mean, like, he becomes the, a boxer. The psychological kind of, stuff that he does to himself. Is that equivalent to the beatings he gets in the ring? Well, I mean, the idea of boxing for Horace, I think, is to get, well, if you're dented in a certain way, I suppose, to get love, you feel like you have to receive love, you have to come to the door with suitcases full of money and, and Cadillacs for whoever you're in love with. Um, so I think to get love, he thinks he's got to be something great. And so he lives in the isolation of the and I think when you're alone with your thoughts in the middle of nowhere, you, at least I do, I come, I start thinking about the version of myself I really wish I loved. And I think with Horace, he's like, well, Mexican boxers are so tough. 
And, and I, I look kind of Mexican. Maybe I could be Mexican and change my identity. It's a really faulty way of thinking, but, but it's that dream. And I always dream. I always dream, like, God, maybe, maybe there's somebody that's really my, you know, like, like kids do. Maybe these aren't my parents. You know, maybe, maybe we have a, an uncle who's going to get out of prison, and he's going to take me away uh, from this house, and, and I'll get to live a new life with him, and then I'll be happy. Uh, it's it's the chasing that thing that you don't have and you're not really sure how to get it. And I think that when we find Horace, he, he understands it's getting too intimate with him and the Reese's. They love him too much, and, and so he's in a way it's their love that causes him to try to be something great. So he starts reading self help books. Um, one called uh, the Boat. You believe, overcome, aspire, and triumph. Um, and he thinks uh, you know how to build your own your own champion inside him. And so he reads the book and he really believes it. And then he comes up with this, idea, this brilliant idea of changing his identity and, and, and he'll become a champion and come back a hero and then, then he'll love him. Okay, well before he gives a couple more numbers and then a bit more later on as well, um, just the accolades that you've received. I mean like from New York Times here to Washington Post whatever, it's always good. It gets the name out there. It's, it's nice to win awards. Um, you have, um, you know, Ronnie Doyle here saying how great you are. You have Colin Tobin saying how great you are too. I'm sure that's all great, but if somebody comes up to you and says to you, do you know something, I'm a very lonely person, and reading about the loneliness that you write about all the time has made me feel a lot better, which I'm sure has happened, I don't know. I'm sure that's the kind of thing that's probably the best actor in the world. Or is that just better? No, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, when any time, really, when anybody says something nice, uh, well, for, for Roddy Doyle, it was amazing because I was such a fan. I read every book. I read every book in the order because I started with my my grandmother gave me the commitments. And uh, when we walk in the doors is, is, is one of my favorite books. So when you get stuff like that, you do like yourself for for like a week. Uh, but uh, uh, but in general, when I always wrote stories for people that that were like if I was writing about loneliness or anxiety. Uh, I wrote those kind of books hoping that they would find someone would find them because when I would find a book like that that would connect with me on, on, on whatever I was going through, uh, it was like finding a friend. And once you find the friend in the book, the book never changes, the record never changes. They're always the same and you can count on them. And so they become like a woman who walked in the doors is, is a part of it. It's not his book, yeah. it's my book. Uh, Willie Nelson's records are, they're not his. Because they're mine. Yeah. So, uh, so, uh, yeah, I've always written for that. That's why I've always, you always try to write honestly and, 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 a, and a little bit with blood. Uh, 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 so maybe you can, you, so someone reads your book and they, they, they go, oh, he's not messing around. Okay, well, I can round them before you do play those to this question again about being autobiographical or not. Are you using this stuff in your own life? One little point, a bus driver has gone on, it is not nice to a pregnant mother and doesn't do the right thing. The right in the store, like, yeah, hold yeah, on, actually horse. Yeah, like, exactly now. He feels like, it's, why didn't I do something like that? Why wasn't I nicer to this woman? Why didn't I berate the bus driver or something? That's surely something you've seen, that's you. No, it's, it's that, you know, I've always been, you know, I think the motel I've uh, talked about it a lot, it's that idea of how to be a good person. And I think one of the ideas of how to be a good person is you have to be a good person all the time. It's like anything else, you have to practice at it. And I think it, there's always times when you, where you don't do something you should, you don't stand up for somebody, you don't help a friend that's going through a hard time. 
all the different things, mistakes you make, or just by being too scared to have. Uh, that is just, I just made it up. I did it, you know. Uh, but, but it's a, a fear, that idea of like not helping someone uh, when you should. And, and I think a horse wants to be a champion, and when he doesn't help, uh, you know, what happens is a, a pregnant, they have a rest stop on a, a long bus ride, and they have a dinner break. And he know, and they, they can't find the pregnant girl. And he knows where she is, but he doesn't like sitting next to her because she's sweaty, and uh, and her baby kind of smells. Uh, and so he, he doesn't tell the bus driver until they leave. And then the bus driver, he tells the bus driver later on, and the bus driver says, well, we're already gone. And he feels so guilty about it and ashamed of himself because the champion doesn't do that. It just reaffirms that he's, he's just a kid, and he wants to be good, but he Struggles as we all do. Okay, use the guitar. Get up here, Dave. Thank you. Well, uh, I was in the band, he was talking about Richard Fontaine, and we did a tour with an old friend of ours named Amy Boone, who's a, a, we hired her to be a keyboard player um, on a tour. And we were all, we were all big fans of her. She was in a band called The Damn Nations. And before each gig, she would warm up, and she's a great singer, and she would warm up and play these old kind of country soul songs. And I started spying on her while she'd warm up. And I just started, night after night, I'd just kind of sit in the back and listen to it. And then one of the guys in my band sat down next to me and started listening to it. This went on for a couple of weeks. And then one night I said, Jesus, man, I just, I would love to be in a band with a good singer. And he looks at me and he goes, Jesus, me too. <laughs> And so after, after that tour, I, I, I just went home and I started writing her songs. I didn't tell her. For eight months, I wrote her song after song after song, not knowing if she'd want to join a band. And then I wrote like a thesis paper. It was about 15 pages of reasons why she should join up to me, with me and, and uh, why I was writing her the songs that I, I did. And, and luckily, she was nice enough uh, uh, to join up and, and we started a band called The Delines. We did one record and we were touring and having a really good time and then uh, she, she got hit by a car and broke both her legs and it's been down for over two years. Um, but starting next February we'll have a new record and, and, and she's finally healed up enough. So it'll be, I guess, almost three years of, of, of her trying to recover. Um, so we're going to send this song out to Amy Boone. This is a, a song called The Oil Rigs at Night and it, it's so fun to write for a for a woman and to write for somebody who can sing because you can finally write love songs because I've always been too embarrassed uh, to write love, many love songs and you can write big songs because she can do it and I never believed in myself to be able to sing big songs. So, so hopefully this song will make sense to you. Since we were kids, 
instrumental off uh, uh, Don't Skip Out of Me. Oh, this is kind of what I was saying earlier about when you're by yourself, you think you can think of the best version of yourself or, or who you're going to get going to be when you get back to your old life. Uh, I always think I'm the greatest guy in the world or I'm going to be the greatest guy in the world when I'm camping in the middle of nowhere. I think all, you know, I'm going to start running, drink less, call all my relatives that I don't call gonna fix parts of my house that need fixing. All these things I'm gonna do. Uh, and then as I see the city lights uh, coming into my town, it all just kind of falls through the floor of the car. And I get to my front door and I'm just me again. But this is that idea of when, when you think you might get it all together.
signing books at the end here, and we're coming towards that now. There is going to be a tiny bit more music, but I think we do have microphone situation if you want to ask some questions to the crowd. Okay, so if you do, you've got to put your hand up, and we're going to have to see you. So if anybody would like to ask Billy any questions now, or I'm maybe too nervous to do it now, I'd like to wait a minute or two, and I'll ask a question first, and whatever. It's entirely up to you. Nobody wants to ask Billy a question now, but if you do, I can't see you because it's too dark. So tough. Okay, I'll try again in a second too, but I want to ask a question, because it's this. Just one or two more last ones this. Um, the Motel, I mean, the first book, or the book your mother didn't read, <laughs> um, that was made like the, the, the movie, Dakota Fanning and Lenny Lersh and Chris Christopherson. Uh, obviously, Lean on Pete is huge now at the moment, too. Do you have to let that go? The big screen is not my thing. I do tell stories and talk my stories, but that's a different thing altogether. And as you said earlier on about Willie Nelson on somebody's album, not being his anymore, but being now yours, you gotta let it go, and if they mess it up or do it the way you don't want to do it, it's tough, hard enough. Well, I, I think you can't have it both ways as far yeah. as, I, the way I look at it, I, I, I knew early on I wasn't uh, smart enough to navigate uh, movie people. I think they're the kings of the Ponzi scheme. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're really great used car salesmen because they, they have to be, they have to convince all these people to invest money in especially like in stories like mine, that takes some salesmanship. Uh, but I realized, just talking to them when, when people started being interested in the motel life, that you could spend years tooling on a story that you, you've already finished, you've already put it away. I've always loved movies, movies have been great friends to me. Uh, so I wanted my books to be part of, of a movie, uh, a film maybe someday, but I decided I would just sign it over to the best person and then stick my head back in the sand where it belongs. So you can't, you, you gotta hope that you sign it over to the right guy. And that, that person wants to make a good movie, whether they do or not, uh, that's beyond your control. But I, I, I just block it all out. I, I, I do that thing that they, they say, I, 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 I cash a check and run the other way. <laughs> but do you ever think in some ways that the characters you have, it might be difficult for Hollywood to do something with, because you like to have characters as failures in a very almost non-dramatic way, and I mean that in a good way. I never think of my uh, characters as failures or losers. Well, I would never. Uh, that's. I think that thing. It's hard uh, for every, for so many uh, films that, that deal with regular people, working class people. Is that I think they can fetishize them. They can fetishize uh, the downtrodden. Uh, um, and I think that happens too much. Uh, yeah, you, you hope and try to, the, to tell them um, your angle on it. Um, but again, I, you know, again, I think filmmakers um, want to create their own version of your story. I, I got lucky with Andrew Hay and on Pete because I just think he's really smart and he's a, he's a cool, cool guy. I trust him. And I knew he'd change the story, but I knew he would try to make it a beautiful story. And I think he has it. I've said this before, but it, it reminds me of a lot of one of my favorite movies, which was Kaz, like Ken Loach. Well, this, like, it's like, you know, you could say it's like Kaz on a horse. Uh, you I know, know as opposed to the cash flow. Yeah, Kaz is, uh, I mean, that was one of those movies, one of the first movies I saw 20 odd years ago where you want to break the TV and pull the kid out and, 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 and put him in your bedroom. Well, hold on a second. In Kaz, if I remember right, something very dramatic happens in the kid. He's meant to put a bed on a horse or something for his brother. He forgets to do it. Yes. So the brother kills the so I'll give away the ending now. So the brother kills the castle. Now what happens? Yeah, it's that idea that, like, the, the idea that 
you know, you have to spend your life working in, in, in any dream you have. Um, you shouldn't have dreams. You should just work in the mind and be happy with that. And the kid has dreams. He's, he's different. And, and, and his brother squashes it. Okay, I'm going to let you before I do the one last, um, books, just to get back to this. I got, the impre- I got the impression, much as you liked being home with your brother, although you didn't know it was going on necessarily, um, listening or stealing his line or whatever it happened to be, and listening to Jesus, you must have read some And listening to the music. The point is, I, I was talking to your brother. No, the point of it is, just that, uh, uh, like, did you find yourself that you're like, did books save you? Yeah, books and, and, and records and movies save me. I mean, I think by the time I was 15, I, I, I did love records uh, so much that um, I knew that I had to uh, be in a band. And I never thought, I, I didn't want to be like a rock star. I didn't want to uh, like have a jet and live on an island. I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, when I died, that I hung out with those types of people, uh, the musicians. Um, I didn't want to be a rock star. I had no, I had no talent. It's arguably that I don't now. But uh, 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 I, yeah, I just wanted. They brought me great comfort, and, I, and, 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 and you know, after a while, when I got older, you know, I wrote for years without showing anybody. I, I, I'd go to the library and just, just go. God, I love my book was next to all of the books. And white would be really nice. I went to a bookstore once, and my books lived with all the other books. And, and so that was kind of my ambition more than more than living here on 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 the coast in a fancy house. Uh, and even though if I, if I, my, I was talking to my younger self, I'd go, Jesus, man, write songs about girls, try to be a rock star so you can buy a house on the coast here. <laughs> okay, but hold on, just I was going to let you go then to play a song. Like in all the bigger reviews that the books have got in terms of the awards and things, like. A serious American literature for our time is one of the things. I'm about book number two or three, let alone book number five. Now, anyway, does it get easier once you reach number five? To write? You know, like I said, with this one, it drove me crazy. I had to cut out 300 pages. No, you know, I I always write for myself, um, for for relief, I guess. So it's only when I finish the book after a couple of years that that I think about it. Is that if any normal person would want to read it, and sometimes the answer is like Jesus, no. Like they don't, and then you're like, oh Christ, I gotta go back and, and, and write another one. Uh, uh, so they never get easier, you know. I, my my ideas of what what other people might like to read are sometimes skewed, uh, um, but it never gets easier. But I always enjoy it. I always enjoy. But look, in saying that thing there, when I said like serious American literature from New Age, it's New York Times stories, but like important new American realist is the one that says. But suddenly you've got a, a thing hanging over you know, the electron. There's something expected from you, like from number six, seven, eight, and nine. You, whether you like it or not, you know, you're there. Whether you like it or not, you're kind no, of like, you know, feel like, oh, I'm a publisher, you know, knocking down your door and saying, come on. You know, I, writing is always my friend. Uh, what I like so much to say, you see with my book, North, my second book, uh, it's about a beat up woman uh, who has alcohol and anxiety problems. By being with her, I could do a couple of things. I could address, uh, you could help someone get through that. You could help people that you know, you can get through it through a book. So you can take something that's really scary and hard that you've seen up close and and you, you can live inside it and, and change it and not be scared of it because you're in control of it. That, that's what I think about when I write. Uh, when I think of Horace, I think about 
Why do people abandon their kids? And I wanted to write a book that would break your heart so just so people would be ashamed of themselves for not being nice to their kids. Uh, so I never think of things like that. Uh, I just, I write the stories that, that get me through and make me feel better about the world and, and make me get up in the morning. Uh, I, I think of my books as saints, uh, like Charlie Thompson and Leon Pete was a saint to me. He was a saint of perseverance. And, 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 and by uh, writing about him, uh, I got up every morning and tried hard because Charlie Thompson would try hard. And I was very cynical. So when I think of Charlie Thompson, I think of like, he would already be up out of bed doing something, man. He wouldn't be laying there reading Billy Batkin till you know, three and a half. Yo, hold on, you sound like you're in charge of your characters. Did they ever run away from you? I mean, tell, like, you know, there is one where um, the uncle has the, has the nephew and everything's gone fine, and then by about page 50 or 60, what happens is he makes the nephew steal a car. Oh, and yeah. So, like, the point being, that, like, is that you, or is that, like, it kind of, you just have to go with it and vote? I mean, everybody's different, I think, and, and maybe every story's different. I think, in a lot of ways, what happens is your, your soul happens to it. Like, you're... You write a story that's going along, like uh, Don't Skip Avenue was supposed to be a happy-go-lucky book about an old man living on a ranch, because I always figured if I was an old man and I lived on a ranch that I'd finally figured everything out and I'd be happy. And I would never have to see anybody and I would just tool around and be all right. Uh, and then, you know, by page 10 on that one, I realized, oh no, it's another book. Uh, so, I, I think what happens is your heart my heart gets involved in it, and my heart's messy. And 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 and, and I, I've always written like if there was a box, you take a box and put everything that scares you, that you love, that haunts you, uh, that you're bad at, that you're decent at, and you put it in a box and you pull it out one by one. And I always thought if you wrote stories around it from every angle, that you would get power over over your fears, over your your own mess. Uh, so a lot of my stories are me. Uh, and analyze and stuff in hopes that I will get a sounder, stronger, more normal person. Uh, I don't recommend that as a therapy tool. It hasn't quite worked for me so far. Uh, but I, what I love most is the, the crafting of the story. The best thing about writing stories is you don't have to be good at it. You just have to not give up. And, and I can try and fail in private for years and I'm pretty okay with it. Uh, because I'm used to that sort of stuff. And, but no one has to know uh, that Motel Life took me four years to write because at the end I say, I was so insecure, I said, written by two weeks, and written in two weeks by one of the brothers at the very end of the book. So in case anyone said, Jesus, man, that, that only took you two weeks. It looks like it only took you two weeks. <laughs> so that was my first question. Oh, my God, Some more songs, or like, you want to go see a movie? 
uh, he's just such a cool guy, you never get tired of him. So it's always an honor to see you and play with you. Uh, this is a song called uh, Mr. Reese's Place in La Jolla. seven-minute songs with no choruses and no catchy parts to it at all and, and just verse after verse after verse. And you can see the guys in my band are, are and still some of my best friends. And you can just see them just getting so bummed out. And then fi finally we were uh, over $10,000 of debt and, 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 and they finally said, could you start writing catchy songs at least for a little bit? Uh, <laughs> And they were real nice about it. It wasn't like they were gonna throw me out of a window, uh, although I, I bet they thought about it. Uh, uh, but once in a while, I wrote a catchy song. This is probably one of the only few, and, and so it ain't much, but it's it's me trying to be catchy. Uh, 
It's called Post Alive.
the stations closed. There's a blue glare across your face. Just come back here. I swear we'll be okay. You don't have to look out the window. Cause no one knows where we are. We are clear and safe. At least for a little time.
sitting here and listening to us. I appreciate it. This will be our last song. Um, uh, it's so nice to be here. It's such a beautiful festival and meeting so many super smart people that make me think I have to at least try harder. It's always a good thing. Um, this is a song called Let's Hit One More Place Before We Go Home. Um, I'm the king of saying that. My wife hates me for it. It's always like, come on, let's just have one more. And she's like, you'll just stay there and you'll put all this money in to those, the new jukeboxes, the, the electronic ones that you can put for like 50 bucks, you can play whatever record you want before everybody else. I'll do that. And, and then I'll make them listen to the whole record. She drives her crazy. Uh, so I'm gonna send this one out to her. And I think tonight for me, is gonna be one of those nights that I'll always be hitting one more place until they leave and make me go home. Good to see you, Dave Murphy. Thank you everybody here. Let's go. 
Thanks for listening to the Doki Book Festival podcast. And if you have any comments or queries or even suggestions or ideas for next year's festival, by all means contact us at the dokibookfestival.org.